Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. This season of the podcast is produced by the Future of Truth, which is a project based at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute. It explores what truth is, where it's going, and why it matters in democracy. This project is made possible by generous funding from University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. It features discussions with publicly minded thinkers about the cultural and political role of concepts like truth, fact, and information. Today, my guest is Cornell West. Cornell is the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Professor at Union Theological Seminary. As listeners no doubt will know, Professor West is among the nation's most distinguished philosophers. For several decades running, Cornell has infused into public life reflections on love, justice, grace, liberation, beauty, dignity, and truth. To be blunt, words fail me, no introduction I could offer really would adequately encapsulate Professor West's contributions to the American spirit. So let's just jump in. Hello, Cornell. Oh, it's a blessing to be here, my dear brother Robert. I appreciate the work, the philosophical and the intellectual, more broadly intellectual work that you have done on pluralism. And you know, in part because of our dear brother, Paul Taylor, yes. we're able to come together. He told me, he said, brother West, don't miss Brother Robert. You're going to have a good time with him, and you, it's already proven to be the case. So it's a blessing to be with you, man. You are so kind. Thank you so much. Um, so I invited you on the program mainly to talk about the importance of social critique in a democratic society, as well as some of its risks. But let's start with the importance of social critique. Now, anyone who's been following your work I think should have noticed that you can be counted on to be a social critic, almost no matter who holds power uh, politically. Now, I'm ref in reflecting on some of the philosophical and democratic touchstones that I know you and I share, I suspect that this stance emerges from a principle that I embrace, and I believe you do too, correct me if I'm wrong, according to which power as such stands in need of critique, that vulnerability to critique is what validates, legitimates power. Now, if I'm right <laughs> about uh, that principle, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you understand it and how you embrace it in your public engagement? Mm -hmm. well, I appreciate the question. I mean, for me, it uh, comes down in part to uh, Socrates versus Thrasymachus in Plato's Republic. Ah. And Thrasymachus believes that might makes right, that power dictates morality, uh, that one can do anything that one wants to do or say anything one wants to say in, over, in order to get over. Obsessed with that 11th commandment, thou shall not get caught. Uh, and Socrates is tied to notions of integrity and honesty, uh, a certain kind of consistency and incoherence, or at least the quest for it. And the Socratic position, Socratic energy, is always weak and feeble in any historical moment of the species because, you know, the hounds of hell, which is greed, which are greed and hatred and contempt and envy and resentment, uh, they're always overflowing. And so uh, these flickering candles in the dark have to do with a Socrates here, a, a, a Jesus there, an Esther or an Amos or a Baal Shem Tov or a Martin King or a Dorothy Day, all trying to be exemplars over against Thrasymachus 
over against might makes right. And uh, both examples, negative and positive, they come in all colors, all genders, all sexual orientation, all national identities. It's a human thing. It just goes all the way down. And in that regard, you know, the kind of calling and vocation that you and I have is really to try to make sure that uh, our, 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 our cause is not reduced to a brand because the commodification is a certain kind of version of Thrasymachus these days. Everybody's for sale. Everything is for sale. People will say almost anything in order to gain access to money and status and power and spectacle. And Socrates is saying, well, there's something called intellectual integrity that seems to be outdated and antiquated, but actually it's one of the most precious forces in the world because it keeps alive a light. It keeps alive a possibility for a quest for truth and beauty and, and goodness and myself as a, as a revolutionary Christian a sense of the holy that flows right out of uh, prophetic Judaism and Hebrew scripture tied to a Palestinian Jew named Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. So do you think, though, that, um, that, that Socratic stance um, is tied to uh, a more maybe contemporary conception of democracy as an ongoing moral project, right? That the, the need for critique is, is the need for a constant struggle to perfect, to achieve, you know, as, as, as Richard Rorty, but to achieve the country. Yeah, we love Brother Dick. We miss him, too. I agree. But uh, one of the things that was so uh, uh, salutary about Rorty's version of pragmatism was the centrality of fallibilism and the centrality of imagination, trying to authorize alternative realities to the present. That's why he's tied to the artist. That's why art, I think, is so very important. Dewey understood this in ways, and James did, too, in his own way. But at the same time, I think it's important to keep in mind that... um, I mean, the Socratic energies that can flow from Athens, from pre-modern times to our late modern or post-modern times, there are some deep continuities. You know, it's not as if we moderns have some special insight in terms of what critique, K-R-I-T-I-Q-U-E really is. (laughs) With Immanuel Kant, we started something new and grand and distinctive, critique. Well, and, uh, if we read John Ruskin close enough, if you read Mary, Mary Wollstonecraft close enough, they didn't read, need to read Adorno to know what critique was. Uh, so that in that sense, I, I, I tend to look at it much more as a matter of just Socratic energy unleashed, which has to do with intellectual integrity. And I would say the same thing about the moral revolution of Hebrew scripture and the species that it unleashes this direction of loving kindness toward the weak and the vulnerable. And you see, this is a major move in the history of the species in terms of a conception of what it is to be human. It's not going to be tied to the heroic activities of a uh, Achilles and so forth that you get in Homer. Uh, something new is going on that's tied to the poor, that's tied to the vulnerable, that's tied to the weak, that's tied to those who view as invisible, whose humanity is overlooked and concealed and so on. And uh, in that sense, I think that the Athens-Jerusalem dialectic that you get among many conservative thinkers, Leo Strauss and others, are ones that I take quite seriously. Fabulous, fabulous. Um, 
let me ask a question about Thrasymachus. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm a failed classicist. I don't know if you knew that about me. <laughs> Started working in ancient and my Greek just never got good enough. Uh, you know, so. Yeah, what do you make of, uh, you know, what do you make of the end of that first book of the Republic where Socrates basically just shames Thrasymachus, doesn't refute him so much as just embarrasses him? What do you, what well, I mean, you, got, what do you think of that? It's a little bit like Dostoevsky uh, is a possessor of the devils that sure. you have the younger generation looking to the older generation for guidance and counsel. Thrasymachus is the one who has this unbelievable energy and intensity, vitality, vibrancy. And, uh, uh, you know, Kephalus, the old man, says, look, you know, I ain't got time for this. Uh, you know, I, my little definition is not working, so I just got to go off and take a nap. And Glucon and Dimitris are coming. We're hungry and thirsty to be taught. And so all Socrates can do initially is to say, because you remember Thrasymachus unworlds himself like a lion or yeah, some yeah. wild animal. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, you wonder whether, in fact, and Plato's genius beyond genius here is quite remarkable because there's a sense in which Thrasymachus is presenting not just an argument, but he's presenting major forces that seem to be overwhelming in the history of our species in terms of providing some way of snuffing out Socratic energy, snuffing out the quest for truth snuffing out quest for beauty and goodness. And so the, the cynicism that flows therefrom, oh, I see those naive ones still opting for Socrates, the childish ones still thinking that morality has a place as opposed to just power dictating morality and so on. And that's very real and it's artistic. It's not just discursive, but it's metaphoric. It's 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 tied to various uh, uh, really I mean tropes in a certain way uh, to use some rhetorical language here, uh, and I and there is I, I do believe that uh, Socratic energy remains a kind of flickering candle in the world of barbaric darkness. Now that may seem a little exaggerated in uh, uh, in the United States where we don't often recognize just how fragile democratic experiments are or how fragile honest criticism is vis-a-vis -vis any arbitrary use of power, right. any party, any gender, any race or any class or whatever, you see. Right. So would it be right then to say that the significance and the, the, the necessity of social critique has to do with confronting the tendency of exercises of power to be arbitrary, right? It's to keep it. That's it. Good. So and, and the need for effective mechanisms of accountability right. and answerability, to use brand of language, uh, and responsibility. Yeah, yeah, great, great. Um, so that raises a, 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 a challenge, I think, one of the risks, I think, of social critique understood as that essential democratic mechanism for accountability, responsibility, the uh, anti-arbitrariness of yes. exercises of power. There's a risk, though, right? And I think it's a risk that, um, if I can just formulate it this way, I think it's a risk that we in the United States are sort of... Um, 
you know, in the grip of right now in this political moment, you know, one optimistic thought about the country is that we're attempting to recover. <laughs> um, right. uh, so I see the dilemma looming. Let me lay it out like this. The recovery of our democratic ethos, we might say, um, will require critical reflection, honest social critique, even uh, critique of the people who are, seem to be committed to the ideals that we ourselves embrace, because critique, even uh, among friends, is, 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 is democratically vital. Okay. However, it seems to me that part of what America is attempting to recover from is widespread disillusionment, distrust in democracy as such, in democratic forms as such. So I worry that the kind of social criticism that we need as a society to recover our democratic spirit will also fuel certain kinds of political cynicism that favor the forces of authoritarianism, um, exclusion, nationalism, um, of the sort that the country is trying to recover from. So let me put it in a Du Boisian way, yeah. maybe. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, the democratic hope is leaving me a little unhopeful, <laughs> we might say. <laughs> what do you, so I see a risk in this. Do you? Yeah, no, that's a wonderful question, though, brother, because um, you see, on the one hand, I mean, cynicism like nihilism, like skepticism, can never be refuted. Uh, it's only by example that you simply choose to opt for it because it's too slippery and there's too many holes in any argument and counter argument to really think that there's a rational road to overcoming skepticism, nihilism, and, 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 and cynicism. You remember the wonderful essay by uh, Bert Yeet on can the skeptic ever live his or her skepticism? Oh yeah. You, see, you can't, the truth in skepticism that Cavell taught us is one in which the retail skepticism provides insights and the wholesale skepticism provides a spectatorial status that we can never hold. We never can be spectators all the way down. The death of a, of a, of a mosquito on the wall will never have the status of the death of one's mother. Right. And if it does, it's nothing to brag about. You see, That's So that sooner or later, you can't be a spectator. And the cynic too, because cynicism is the flip side of sentimentalism. And so the cynic will always carry a certain kind of truth-telling capacity because human beings are who we are. You know, we're walking disasters, we're walking wanderers at the same time. And if it's just a matter of pointing out the disasters, then the skeptics are going to win. But when it comes to, well, there's something else beyond the disaster and the same person. You've got to be kidding. Ooh, Ibsen may have had a point. Even Eugene O'Neill may have gone too far. There's some possibility, there's some overflow, there's some excess, there's something beyond just the worst. And then you bring that into the skeptic, the cynic's own life. Oh, I, I saw you listen to Coltrane last night with that smile. That one, That's not a skepticism, a cynicism all the way down, is it? Something is being appealed to that's beyond just this narrow reduction that's viewed that everything is so awful and disastrous all the time. Ooh, interesting. Eminent critique at work, right? That's right. Eminent critique at work. I saw you crying at your mother's funeral. Oh, I see. So death does have value and significance given those deep memories of attachment you have in growing up. 
We understand because you're a participant just like us. You're not a spectator, spectator all the time, as it were. But back to your question, part of our problem is, you know, we're in an empire that's experienced such massive spiritual decay and moral decrepitude that the crisis of credibility and the crisis of legitimacy in the institutions and in the forms of criticism aligned with those institutions make it difficult for any genuine democratic criticism to be taken seriously beyond just power playing games. Now that is a dilemma. It really is. And I don't think there's a way out other than, and you tell me what you think about this, other than examples tied to waves of moral and spiritual renaissance. And what I mean by that, and politically it means social movements in a certain right. sort, but it's more than just social movements. It's more than just talk about justice. It's about a renaissance of a care and a concern for poor people, a renaissance of a care and concern for the wretched of the earth and for those language or anybody who's suffering, anybody who's wrestling with arbitrary power, unjustified pain and un unwarranted hurt. And these waves are not predictable. You know, no one has control over it. It's only by our examples can you actually see the kind of shifts that are required. It's like a Rabbi Heschel in the, in the 60s, right? That he can exemplify something that has something to do with very, very deep strands within the prophetic legacy of Jerusalem tied to prophetic Judaism. And the young folk look around and say, hmm, he's got something going on. We might not like the particular version of Judaism that he's got, it's orthodox, but that, that ethical juice that's flowing, the moral concerns that are so genuine that he exemplifies can have tremendous impact. And so the, the renaissance that we're talking about tied to social movements takes a variety of different forms from religious to non-religious to intellectual to artistic, especially. Sure. So just to go back to Thrasymachus then, because, right, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I worry though that the um, part of the, the decrepitude that you mentioned that the country is suffering from is a series of attitudes and dispositions that are invested in the denial that the moral sentiments, the, the, the modes of attachment that people have to one another, qua human being, <laughs> right, are right. important, right? So we've got a, a, a vernacular, at least in the right. quarters of the politics, of the body politic, that treats feelings as something to be discounted, set over and above logic and fact, We've got the idea of liberal tears and snowflakes and anybody who shows sensibility of a moral kind towards the weak, the vulnerable <laughs> is um, uh, in some quarters of the, of, of the public discourse even is treated as some kind of like Thrasymachus wants to say of Socrates, go get right. someone to wipe your nose for you because you've just been duped. You know, you're, you're a sucker, right? That's and right. So That's the right. vernacular is, is almost, I mean, it, we are sort of living the first book of the Republic in a way now, right? Uh, so the, you know, the vernacular is so interested in discounting and derogating um, the idea of care for one right. another, uh, that I worry that the, 
the exemplar story that you want to tell, which I'm deeply attracted to, yeah. gets spun back into, you know, this is sort of a, a, a machine that can just always turn whatever, you know, whatever that's human that you put into it, more fuel for resentment and indignation. It's a powerful, powerful question and set of questions, really. Um, let me just say a quick word, though, based on my own personal experience over the last few years. I'm thinking back of um, my time at Charlottesville, where we got some very, very sick uh, neo-Nazi Ku Klux Klan brothers. We got 21 right-wing groups come together, first time in over 50 years. Some of them are listening to Motown as I walk by. And I say, hmm, this is very American. Well, listen to black music and you come to trash black folk and Jewish folk and gays and lesbians. And so I approach, have a conversation. And of course, their view is something that I had to take seriously. Their view is that they are the weak and the vulnerable. They are the victims. So they're actually following through on my own conception of how I try to live a morally decent life. Right, right. right, right. So then I have to engage them and, and, and say, well, 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 wait a minute, let's look at the various lens. Well, no, they're replacing us and so forth and so on. So you have a serious conversation possibility in terms of how could it be that, you know, Thrasymachus would view himself as the victim, even as he's empowering himself and getting ready to crush the folk who are being victimized. Well, see, that's a serious dialogue that needs to take place, that's one. But the second one, even more so, is that some of the people who are trashing, even the neo-Nazis, are trashing them in such a way that they're viewed as less than human. So that's the possibility of liberal self-righteousness. That's the possibility of radical self-righteousness. That's the possibility of McCann, uh, um, the uh, uh, Manichaean thinking. Right. All the good's on one side, all the evil's on the other. We're pure over here at MSNBC and CNN. And we say, get off the crack pipe. Y'all don't say a mumbling word about empire. You don't say a mumbling word about drones. You don't say a mumbling word about critiques of Wall Street. You got some wonderful criticisms of Fox News, but there's certain taboo issues that you don't want to come to terms with. So somehow we've got to try to be consistent, even when we're dealing with these sick, pathological, xenophobic fellow human beings, who are, many of whom are following Trump, some of whom even more far out than, than Trump in terms of their hatred and contempt for uh, for black people and Jews and others. So that. It's a, it's, it's, it's a way of trying to situate and map some of these possibilities that will provide breakthroughs because none of these folk are static. They're all in motion. A slice of them even voted for my dear brother Bernie yeah. because of the critique of Wall Street and NAFTA and so forth. But they've got deep xenophobic sensibilities you can't overlook and what have you, right? 
so that the question becomes then, well, in the end, you know, how do you attempt to be a kind of fallible exemplar who's wedded to integrity, honesty, decency, truth-telling, and joy-spreading at a moment in which so much is dim and grim and dark? And that's just what it is to live in and in, in, in an empire in decline and decay it's just a very very bleak moment and it doesn't mean the bleakness has the last word there's a lot of joy there's a lot of struggle there's a lot of strife there's some e- e- ecstasy and there's some uh, bliss still to be had but generally speaking you know it's a late it's a late imperial uh, moment in which we find ourselves and i take it that the the prescription then, uh, what you're recommending is, you know, something on the order of the, the Jamesian strenuous mood. <laughs> you know, there are real goods and evils and you've got to fight it out, right? Because victory is assured on neither side. Uh, and attitudes of despair, which I, I, I just heard you attaching as a despairing attitude, the fundamental thought that our political foes, even our political em- enemies are ipso facto irredeemable that that is itself a kind of um a kind of pessimism is that right that that, that, that is both pessimism but it's also a uh, uh an adolescent pessimism which is this is not mature i mean mature pessimism like leopardi i can i can understand because leopardi can look honestly at the falsity and futility of certain kinds of pessimism and still overcome it in the forms of the unbelievable linguistic creativity and his sense of calling and vocation, back to what we talked about before, you see. Right. Right. And, and as long as you're holding on to that vocation and calling, then you're going to be able to unleash an energy and vitality that is not crushed by certain kinds of pessimism and cynicism and nihilism. See, I believe that nihilism, cynicism, skepticism, are always already skeletons hanging in our closet. And if you're not in, in attuned to what's in your closet, then your room is going to be a very, very vacuous place. <laughs> <laughs> Cornell, I, it's, we, I can, we can talk for a, a, a very, you've been very generous with your time. I, you know, we can continue. Well, it's so much fun talking with you, though, brother. I can tell you that. This is, this is very, very, uh, very rich stuff that we're talking about. And the fact that, you know, both of us come out of philosophical traditions of earlier exemplars, the Jameses and the Deweys and the uh, Suzanne Langers and the Whiteheads and the, uh, and others all the way up to Paul Taylor and, you know, Lucia's Outlaw and the other. Oh, you just trying made two of my wrestle. favorite colleagues. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. Well, you, you are very blessed and blessed to have you. But, but who can look unflinchingly at the night side of the human condition, but still must have the courage to engage in their own distinctive forms of quest for truth and beauty and, uh, and goodness. And for some of them, even the holy. Yeah, well... Um, Cornell, thank you so much for your time. 
Um, let me say a few parting words uh, to our audience about the podcast, and then we'll, I'll, I will thank you again. Um, yeah, yeah, so fellows in the audience, you've been uh, listening to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. Um, I've been talking to Professor Cornell West and having an absolutely wonderful time sharing ideas with him. Um, I want to thank, before we uh, end the episode, though, our podcast team. These are people who work very hard at producing uh, uh, this endeavor. Toby Napolitano at the University of California at Merced uh, handles our sound production. Elizabeth Della Zazara of the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute is our communications director. And Drew Johnson handles uh, the research that helps me uh, at University of Connecticut. The podcast, I will remind you, is produced by the University of Connecticut in, uh, Humanities Institute's The Future of Truth Project. It has generous funding from the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. Thank you all for listening and bye for now. Thank you.